loves. My name is Nelson. I'm one of the pastors at Artisan Church. It's my privilege and delight to uh, open up the scriptures for us this morning. Um, as you can tell, if you've been around for a while, you know this is not my office at SOMA. This is my new office at the Alexander Center, and I feel absolutely um, ecstatic to be looking out of a window right now uh, as I record this sermon. Um, hash brown blessed. I'm uh, pre-recording this ahead of Sunday because this weekend Terry is going to be away. And uh, at this stage of our lives, solo childcare and live sermon delivery are just not a combination that can exist. So here I am, here we are. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Barbara Brown Taylor, writes about being invited by a wise old priest to come speak at his church in Alabama. When she asked what he wanted her to talk about, his reply was simply, Come, tell us what is saving your life right now. And I love that question. What's saving your life right now? I can't help but wonder what if that question became commonplace as an informal greeting. What, as common as what's up or what's new or what's going on. Can you imagine a world where we are actually attuned to our lives to such an extent that a greeting like what's saving your life right now wouldn't seem weird or awkward or too forward? What's saving your life right now? What, what's keeping you in motion? What does your daily existence seem most dependent on? Well, in our ancient prayer book, there's a well-known psalm that opens this way. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? And the psalmist, in a sense, is asking himself that very question. Where does my help come from? What's, what's saving my life right now? It touches on the essence of what it means to be human. If I'm not just going to survive but flourish, is that task all on me? Is it ultimately up to us to help ourselves? Or does our help come from outside ourselves? So we're continuing this week in our uh, practice series called Praying the Psalms. And the reason we're doing this again is because the Psalms aren't there merely to be studied and thought about or to teach us about God. They're there to be prayed and sung and chanted and heard to teach us to know God and to encounter God. So we're gonna continue holding our one primary question, which is to ask how is this Psalm teaching us to pray as we open up Psalm 121 together. So let's hear the whole thing now. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. If you happen to have a Bible uh, or an app, you might notice the heading of this psalm, which is a song of ascents. A song of ascents, as in going up, a song for climbing. Uh, and it felt appropriate to look at this psalm since for a lot of us, 2020 has been less a leisurely stroll by the ocean and more of a grueling hike. And for many, it's even been a perilous journey. 
And in our ancient ancestors' wisdom, they included not just a single psalm of ascent, but a collection of them. So Psalms 121 through 134 are collectively known as the Psalms of Ascent. So Psalm 121 is like the first in a compilation of prayers for when life feels like an uphill climb. The picture is of someone on a journey with mountains in view, wondering where they might get some help. Now historically, the reason they're called Songs of Ascent, there are a few possibilities uh, that scholars have attuned to. One is that it could be a reference to the 15 physical steps leading up to the temple. And some rabbinic writings say that the Levites, the worship leaders of ancient times, sang these psalms on the steps of the temple on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Another thought is that it's a general reference to just going up to Jerusalem in actual pilgrimage. It could be that these psalms are a sort of hymn book for pilgrims on their way to the major festivals. Also, pretty popular is that this is a simply metaphorical understanding of going up to Jerusalem. This, this has become popular. The, the idea of pilgrimage in general, progress on the faith journey with God, ascent, going up, journey, pilgrimage, song for an uphill climb. All of these themes are at work here. I lift up my eyes to the hills, to the mountains, where does my help come from? The psalmist is asking the question that will define the nature of his journey. As he asks this question, his gaze is fixed on a point far above his current position. He lifts his eyes to the mountains. Why? It could be that he's threatened by them. Mountains can be scary. Places of darkness and shadow. Uh, a place where enemies hang out. Think of jealous, murderous King Saul on the hunt for David who has to flee to the hills and hide in caves. Uh, Peterson's translation pictures the mountains and God as two possible sources of strength. Um, in the message it says, I look up to the mountains. Does my strength come from mountains? No, my strength comes from God who made heaven and earth and mountains. So in the ancient Near East, mountains were thought of as the pillars of the earth that stabilize it over the chaos of the watery deep. Pagan religions often worship their gods at specific locations, and the idea of mountains or elevated regions as being sacred rose from the belief that this is where the gods met to do business. So too today, mountains occupy a significant space in our imaginations. When I look up at the mountains, my first sort of thought um, is that I, I feel a sense of awe of majesty, of wonder, like wow. Mountains remind us of our comparative smallness in the world. When you go on a hike and finally reach the peak and on a clear day you look down from lofty mountain grandeur as the hymn goes, words often fail. We sometimes can't bring ourselves to say much more than wow and nothing more need be said. But there's also a rush that comes from being at the top, the pride of having accomplished something. Um, you made it. So instead of sitting on your couch, you climbed a mountain. Like, way to go. And so you post it on social media so people know what you did and where you are right now. A change in elevation gives you a sense of elevated status. Mountains reveal something about our cultural obsession with ascent. We like being at the top. It gives us a sense of security and identity, maybe even superiority. Think of the ways we talk about elevation. 
professionals who climb the ladder of success, <clears throat> popular artists who rise up the charts, athletes at the top of their game. We talk about A-list celebrities, not Z-list, the, the letter at the top of the alphabet, not the bottom. The show is called Dancing with the Stars, not Dancing with the Obviously Ordinary Humans. World leaders <clears throat> call their meetings summits. The Psalms reveal that kings and rulers, the ones who hold the most power, are those who are most likely to think of themselves as being above regular people, as something more than human. So mountains could represent any number of things, the, the dangers of travel, sacred space, powers and natural forces, security, even identity. So our traveler sets out on the road, glances up at the hills, considers any or all of the realities they could mean and wonders about the source of his help. And then he answers his own question. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is a refrain that shows up a few times within the Ascent Psalms. If you're faced with danger or plagued by concerns, it's a good idea to remind yourself of who made these mighty hills in the first place. Maker of heaven and earth is known as a merism. And there are more of these in this particular psalm, sun and moon, day and night, going out and coming in, now and forever. <clears throat> and so the language and style of the psalm evoke the message of the psalm. It's about God's complete, all-embracing protection of the pilgrim on the journey. Wherever you go in time or space, wherever you are between these poles, God is there. There are no circumstances in which God is unable to protect. A lot of other Psalms echo this reality. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold or fortress or strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 40, uh, 145, or sorry, uh, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is trustworthy in all his promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The Lord is near to all who call on him. We all need this kind of help, ever-present, gracious, generous, because the journey of life sometimes involves death. It leads us into treacherous pathways and dark descent. It's worth pausing here to reflect on how God helps. There's a story that's been retold often, goes like this. There's a man stuck on a rooftop in a flood and he's praying to God for help. So a man in a rowboat comes by and shouts to the man on the roof, jump in, I can save you. The stranded fellow shouts back, no, it's okay, I'm praying to God and he is gonna save me. So the rowboat went on. Then a motorboat comes by, the person in the motorboat shouts, jump in, I can save you. To this, the, man, the stranded man says, no, thanks, I'm praying to God, he's gonna save me. I have faith. So the motorboat went on. Then a helicopter comes by. The pilot shouts down, grab this rope, I will lift you to safety. To this, the stranded man again replied, no thanks, I'm praying to God, and he is going to save me, I have faith. So the helicopter pilot reluctantly flies away. Before long, the water rose above the rooftop and the man drowned. 
When he arrives in heaven, finally gets his chance to discuss the situation with God, he exclaims, I had faith in you, but you didn't save me. You let me drown. I don't understand why. And to this, God replies, I sent you a rowboat and a motorboat and a helicopter. What more did you expect? Again, familiar story, but there's a reason it gets told often. And these days it gets told because the flood that a lot of people are waiting for God to save them from is called COVID-19. And I just want to implore those folks to consider the helpers God sent. Often, I would even say a majority of the time, our help that comes from God is delivered through human means. So let us take care not to perpetuate overly simplistic and false binaries that offer advice and platitudes that are really just a form of spiritual bypassing. Don't put your trust in people, they'll only let you down. You just gotta trust God. No, that's neo-gnosticism. It's a sort of faith, I guess, but it's a disembodied faith, which is to say not Christian. It's that great mystic, Teresa of Avila, who said, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. We need to learn to figure out who we can trust and practice trusting in those people. Where do we see people actively being the body of Christ in the world? Now, part of trusting God is learning to place our trust in people who are worthy of trust. And it was the modern day mystic, Fred Rogers, who said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. So when the psalmist says, my help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, may we not over-spiritualize what that means. The point of merism is that he's saying, God made heaven and earth and everything in between, including the entire human family created in the image of divine love. Be wary of those who warn us not to trust science, for example, whether it has to do with COVID or climate change. So how is Psalm 121 teaching us to pray? Well, here's one way. To hold the following question in prayer. Can I trust God enough to sometimes send help through ordinary human means? To just be with that question in silence. Can I trust God enough to sometimes send help through ordinary human means, which are often extraordinary, let's be honest, like, you know, medical science. Okay, we've spent a lot of time on two verses here, but that's okay. We're nearly there. Um, the rest of the psalm names various ways that God helps us. God will not let your foot slip. God doesn't sleep. He watches over you 24-7. Sun and moon won't harm you. God will keep you from all harm. Now, these are bold claims, and I've got questions. Because I know people who have slipped. I know people who have felt unseen and unnoticed by God, who have experienced not just some harm, but significant levels of harm. In the face of these realities, how are we meant to understand the psalmist's bold claims of all-encompassing divine care? 
I don't fully know. But I want to offer one attempt at a response. First to say Psalm 121 doesn't say everything that scripture has to say about human adversity and the way God interacts with us in the midst of it. Slipping does happen. We see that in scripture as well. Unseenness happens. Harm happens. And it's all under God's watch care. So I mentioned early on in the series that because the Psalms were the prayer book of ancient Israel, they were also the prayers Jesus was taught to pray. And I find it helpful to imagine Jesus himself praying Psalm 121. We've just entered the Lent season, so maybe we picture Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he was to be crucified, and knowing what was ahead of him, praying, my Father, if there is any way, get me out of this, yet not my will but yours be done. Or think of other parts of Jesus' story when it would have been easier to give up and throw in the towel. Abandonment by his friends. Accusations from the religious establishment. The constant threat of death at the hands of empire. The writer of Hebrews invites us, when, when you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. That's Hebrews 12. Jesus faced some mountains, and yet his father never left him. He knew he was being watched over and kept. He knew he was with and in the father, and that the father was with and in him. Jesus, as a fully human being like us, lived with the assurance that whatever he would face, he would never be alone. That all would be well, even though at the moment all was not well. We can imagine Jesus praying this psalm, and we can direct our prayer to Jesus, to the one who not only prayed this prayer but lived it, knowing we are with and in God and that God is with and in us, the ground of our very being. Psalm 121 has been called the Psalm of the Sojourner. Then, as now, every one of us faces an arduous journey on one level or another. It's filled with unknowns, with questions. And the promise we find in this prayer is that we will be kept by God every step of the way. The promise we find in this prayer is that we, um, or another psalm puts it this way, that even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I've already touched on one way to pray this psalm. Let me briefly offer a couple more. One, it occurs to me, could be to simply ask God for eyes to see how we are being protected and seen and kept from harm. To ask really, what is saving my life right now? To practice noticing the hand of divine love and naming how God may be at work in hidden ways. One other possibility, we could pray Psalm 121 by actively considering how we might become the answer to someone else's prayer, to be the hands and feet of Christ to another. Maybe to begin by saying to God this week, how might I be the means of your help to one of your precious children who needs it? And then be still enough and quiet enough, long enough to listen for the Spirit's answer. So just a few possibilities 
share other ones as you see them. Again, to re reiterate some of the ways that we've prayed the Psalms in the past, to simply pray Psalm 121 every day this week, um, either as it is or to read it with a journal in hand, um, to paint a picture, to write a song, to write a poem um, that says something about your prayer in response to this particular Psalm. So let me offer a prayer now and then you'll be invited to the Lord's table. God of the journey, you who watch over our coming and going every step now and forever, it's a hard path and we need your help. Give us a sense of your presence in the midst of pain, dislocation, confusion, suffering and death. Reveal to us the many ways, small, large, hidden, more plainly visible, the ways you are saving our lives right now. And help us see the ways you might be inviting us to be your source of help to our neighbors. We pray in the name of the one who is our help, Jesus, the crucified and risen one.